We've been preaching through the book of Philippians using the cleverly titled sermon series name of Give Em Heaven. Has a nice little moniker for what we're called to be out in this world for the sake of the world. And I think that the importance of this is driven home by a recent decision that was made in Ireland this week. And an essay that I read, a friend shared with me and some others about this essay in The Spectator, a British paper, that goes like this. It's written by a gay atheist. So pause for a second. Categorize in your mind. A gay atheist who said this, I want the church to stand against gay marriage. He said this on the heels of a historical precedent-setting vote in Ireland legalizing same-sex marriage. This is not a sermon about that. Sorry. But what it is about is about a gay atheist who presumably does not believe any of the same things that we believe by virtue of the fact that he doesn't even believe God exists, much less that we should listen to him, who chastises the Roman Catholic Church and and the Anglican Church in the land where he lives in the British Isles, and he says this. Here's the thing that you should learn from this public referendum. The only thing to learn from it is that 62% of the people in the referendum does not cause sin in the eyes of God to cease to be a sin. This is what the gay atheist said. Can't those Christians see that the moral basis of their faith cannot be sought in the pollster's arithmetic? What has the Irish referendum shown us? It is that the majority of people in the Republic of Ireland do not agree with their church's century-old doctrine that sexual relationships between two people of the same gender are a sin. Fine, we cannot doubt the finding. But can a preponderance of public opinion reverse the polarity between virtue and vice? Would it have occurred to Moses, let alone God, for even a moment to defer to Moloch worship at the base of Mount Sinai just because that's what all the Israelites preferred to do? Again, this is not a sermon about that. What it is about is someone looking on and saying, is the church, are they trying to punk us? Do they say they have words from God and then the second those words become unpopular, they vacate them? They say, we need to to reanalyze this. We need to rethink this whole thing. Is there anyone, he wonders. I think this is what I hear in his voice. Is there anyone who can show us another way of life? Is there anyone who's going to stand against us in some way and say, should we really just be led along by our own noses? Do we really get to determine what the vision of human life is on this earth? Are we the ones who created earth and life under the sun and know therefore what is best about it? When I read that, I thought, this is why this series, Give Them Heaven, is so important. The apostle is talking to people who are, he claims, citizens of heaven, yet they live in an embassy of heaven, in a Roman colony called Philippi. We are citizens of heaven, we're told. We live 
on Lookout Mountain or Trenton or Flintstone. We worship together here on the back of Lookout Mountain, a little embassy, a little outpost of the heavens to give people a taste, a different taste maybe, to say this is what the one who made us intends for human life. And it isn't up for grabs or up for popularity votes. There must be someone willing to stand and suffer to believe these things and to give people a taste of what's so good about these things. And so the apostle has just told us that it is his goal. It's his goal to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of participating in his sufferings. Because he knows that by following Jesus, there's going to be times when you are ridiculed. You're called the bigot. You're called the the fundies. You're equated with people who are violent and mean. There's going to be misunderstanding of the way that we are. And yet the apostle says, I'm willing to let Jesus' shame get on me because I want his glory to get on me too. I'm willing to let the trouble Jesus went through and the death that Jesus went through get on me because that death has been for me. And I'm going to be on the right side of history one day. And I can't wait. And so it's my goal to be standing there. There's a great essay with Walker Percy. I may have mentioned it before. He says, it's the questions that they never asked me. It's a self-interview And he's asked in this interview, what do you believe? And he describes that he's a Catholic. And they say, but how can you really believe this stuff? And he says, what else is there? And they go off and list, well, there's secular humanism and Buddhism, and there's all kinds of different representations of human belief out there. And he goes, precisely, what else is there? I don't want to get to the end of my life A life that is so strange and so wonderful and suggests that somehow it could be accounted for by nothing. He says, it seems to me, I'm making this baby really sad. It'll get better, I promise. It seems to me that we should settle for nothing less than Jacob, who said, I'm going to grab a holt of God and not let go till he gives me a blessing. The interviewer says, grab a holt. He says, it's a Louisiana expression. It seems to me we should do nothing less than grab a holt of God and say, I'm not going to let go until he gives me a blessing. The sermon today is called Grabbing a Holt of God because the apostle says, it's my goal, it's my lifelong aspiration to be with Jesus standing in the new world. But I haven't obtained everything I hope for yet. And I have not already been made perfect. I still got miles to go before I sleep. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus has taken hold of me and I want to take hold of him back. If we are going to be any good for the world or for each other then we have to be people who are grabbing hold of God and know that he has grabbed hold of us. So the first point is simply this. You're called to press to grab a hold of God. 
You're called to press, to push, to strain, to grab a hold of God. Did you watch the spelling bee this week? On ESPN, ESPN! (laughs) These kids made me think I might not know English. They're so smart and so impressive and so poised. A little self-righteous in their uber intelligence, if you ask me. Is that from the Greek origin and the Anglo-Orthodox version? And like people's brains are falling out of their ears and they know what they're talking about. But it was fantastic. These kids were amazing. And they were on ESPN spelling words that I didn't even know existed. I used to think I was a good speller. Now I'm not even sure I know anything about our language. But one of the things that was interesting about this story, about the spelling bee, is you got to the bottom five, the last five standing. How many millions started out, even at Fairland School and Chattanooga Valley Middle and maybe Dade Elementary? Kids started this process, and they land here in, Nash- in the National Scripps Howard Spelling Bee in Washington, D.C. And these guys are the last five. And there was one Caucasian boy. And this boy, unlike all his predecessors, when they got out, I noticed this and I thought about this. Why is this? When the other kids got out, these Asian kids, these Indian kids, when they got out, they were disappointed and their families and they would hug and they would embrace and they would kiss and they would offer one another consolations. And it was a, it was a warm Familial thing. But our, our white kid, reminding me of something exactly like I might have done at this age, right in front of God and everybody on ESPN, as he's sitting on a couch for the public interest story of the interview after, the camera is on him, and his sweet, beloved mother reaches over to 14-year-old boy, who's just gotten out of the spelling bee, she reaches over to give him a kiss on the cheek, and he says, talk to the hand. He pushes her away. He, like this, like she's got cooties. And then fortunately for the viewers at home and for this mother who's ever, forever been destroyed, they showed it again at the end when they were showing the, re- the closing clips. They just showed highlights from the bee, and they showed the boy, go, get away from me. While mom tries to kiss him. Mom goes home to despair. All her friends see it. She wonders, why am I such a failure as a mother? My son doesn't love me. He can't undo it. He's right there. It's documented. His mom tried to hug him and he pushed her away. He wasn't having any of it. It's interesting to me that the apostle would say, here's my goal. Here's my goal. I have been taken hold of by God. And so what my framing of my life is meant to be, my response to that is I'm trying to be someone who doesn't push God away anymore. He's reached over like a mom trying to welcome me in. And my maybe natural adolescent instinct, hopefully, see, this mom can be comforted. Her wise friends back home in Connecticut or wherever they're from can say to her, darling, realize he's not really a human. He's pre-human. 
Hopefully, with enough love and enough organic food, quit feeding them the processed stuff, he will get kinder. And eventually he might actually have a heart and he might care about you and not care about how he looks. He's just an adolescent. He's not really a person. That's what they'll say to her. But the apostle knows that God has moved in toward him and said, you know what? I hereby conscript you who has been angry against me, who has been my violent opposer, who in your indigenous state was trying to kill the very thing that I was trying to fan into flame. And I have reached down to embrace you and bring you in close and to say, I want you in the heart of things. And Paul says, here's what my life's going to be. I press on to take hold of this Jesus who has already taken hold of me. I'm not going to resist him anymore. I'm not going to be like the kid who when the mom reaches in for a kiss, he says, get away from me, God. I'm going to welcome it. Because I know this God wants me and he wants good for me, so I'm going to want him back. Not that I've already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It's a wonderful thing that the scripture promises you over and over and over again, and I would hold it out as a promise today. You sometimes have to talk people into it, but this realization that if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. If we seek him with all our heart, we're told, we'll find him. The author of Hebrews says that whoever seeks God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The Apostle Paul tells the religious people, the aristocracy of intellect at Mars Hill, God has made us and placed us where we are so we might reach out and find him. And he's, he's not very far from us. He wants to be reached out and found. And Paul says, God has intervened in my life, taken hold of me. And now what I'm doing is living in response to that, to not push him away, who has drawn me near. I'm making it my goal to draw near to him. Because that's the only place that anything good is going to happen, is in drawing near to him. If you start to believe this, that God is someone that you want to be near, you can get a kind of audacious uh, requesting because the Bible has given you sanction for this. Yesterday was our last baseball game of the rec season. And And a little kid came up to me, a kid who was on my team that day. I did not know his name because he was not normally on my team. It's the end of the season on Lookout Mountain. And if you play baseball here, you know that by the end of the season, no one cares anymore. That's why we produce so many major leaguers. And why me and a few of my friends are constantly frustrated. We're not frustrated. I love everybody. Really, really, I do. This sweet little boy, though, he came up to me. I didn't know him. I I learned his name. I knew his dad. And he says to me, Coach, can I pitch today? I need to pitch today. My grandpa is here. 
And he loves to see me pitch. Now, I knew when he asked me to pitch that he shouldn't. I assumed. That's not fair, but you've got to make assessments. You size things up. But he didn't care. He was bold. He came up to me and he said, hey, my grandpa's here. My grandpa. He loves to see me pitch. And I said, well, is your grandpa going to be here at the second game? No. He's going to leave after the first game. All right, buddy, I make you no promises. But we get to the third inning. And I see, and I say to the boy, we got a lead, I think. Hey, is your grandpa still here? Yes. All right, you're going in. You're pitching. He pitched an inning. He did great. And he got to pitch for his grandpa. But you know what's interesting to me? It's interesting to me every time because the kids are so bold. I don't ever remember having this boldness as a kid. They just ask everything. Do you mind if I drive your car? Well, aren't you seven? (laughs) I can do it. I'm really good. My dad said it was great. They're so bold. But do you know what's wonderful about this? Is that Paul can say, here's what I'm doing. I'm pressing hold to take, I'm pressing to take hold, to grab hold of God, to say, I've got to have something from you to do this life. I want to identify with Jesus. And so it gives you this kind of boldness because you know that the strong and tender hand of God has reached out first to you. You would not be wanting him if he were not first wanting you. Every impulse you have that's Godward has been magnetically pulled out of you so you know you're moving towards someone who's like a mother who wants to give you a kiss. Who's someone who's on your side. Who's a grandpa who wants to watch you do stuff. If you believe that, you'll start to make some requests of God. You'll make it your aim. Can I get close to you, please? Can you rearrange my desires? Can you make me a different kind of person so that I am someone who presses to take hold of you? Asking like that little kid, not the kid who's pushing mom away, but the little kid who says, hey, I need to be pitching so my grandpa can see me. Press to grab a hold of the God who has grabbed hold of you first. And the second point is this, and the last point. You strain toward a strenuous mercy. Not that I have, I I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of God like I want, or taken hold of the life that I want even. But one thing I do. Forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Now here's this amazing thing. When you are straining, when you are pushing, one thing is Paul gives you this kindness if you're just reading between the lines. And the kindness is this. This life of following Jesus is how shall we say in technical terms? Hard. It's difficult. John Calvin says there's a thousand ways for the soul to bleed. And if you're going to one day stand receiving the, the welcome of God, that right now you're going to fall a lot with the Savior who got beaten down, who got misunderstood, who got abandoned who abandoned his own 
desires in order to follow his father. He lets us know that it's going to be hard, which is really a comfort, I think, to say, I haven't obtained this yet. I haven't gotten to be what I want to be just yet. But I strain toward it. You can often, when you read the Bible, I don't know if this happens to you, it happens to me. When you read the Bible, you can often, you hear things, and you see it, and you either say, I'm going to adopt this and just sort of pretend like I am like this. And then you're living a lie, and you don't really move towards God when you're living a lie, because you're afraid of being found out. You feel like I'm living something that isn't true. Or you just give up in despair. It's too hard. I knew you were going to screw me, God, and you just run away. You push him off. He's no good. He can't be trusted. He won't answer the way I want him to. Well, here you have the apostles saying, both happen. I have this aspiration that's big enough for the morning, and it's big enough for my whole life. I am straining toward, no matter what happened yesterday, I'm going to keep pressing toward what is ahead. But what he knows is that there's this strenuous mercy out ahead of him. And that's the thing for which you can strain. We saw a movie this week. It only cost us $722. But there were four of us, you know, so it was reasonable. It was called Home. And in it was a little alien whose name was O. And that is because this well-loved fellow, every time he walked into a situation, people said, Oh. It's pretty affirming. He was played by Jim Parsons from that uh, Big Bang Theory. And there was a spunky young lass who was not an alien, but an American girl, played by Rihanna. Rihanna. And these two were the main characters in this movie. And O is an alien who has made himself a mistake. He's among a group of people who live in fear, and when everything, anything happens, they run away. And they have a rule. That if you make a certain number of mistakes, you must be erased. Which is like a kind cartoon version of instantaneous disappearance. Execution cartoon style. But here's what this fella has to say with Steve Martin, who's the leader of the Beeves or whatever they're called. He says, you have made a mistake. I will have to erase you. He says, no, no, don't erase you. He says, we have a rule. After nine mistakes, you must be erased. How many mistakes have you made? And O says, 62? If you're not good at math, that's a lot more. That's like almost seven times as many mistakes. And he says, but I won't make another one. I've made 62 mistakes, but I won't make another one. And Steve Martin says, but you might. And he says, no, I won't. But you might. No, I won't. But you might. We have to erase you. It doesn't make for bold people. If you think you're going to fail, if you think there's an eye of displeasure on you constantly, you cannot strain and run without watching your feet. But if you believe you're running toward a mercy that says, guess what? My son Jesus Christ has been erased for you. So that no matter how many sins, so no matter how many ways that you have failed, so no matter how many 
ways that you've been mean or callous or indifferent to the needs of others, that you've violated your own standards or the standards of God, no matter how much cowardice you've demonstrated, how much stinginess has overtaken you, how much forgetfulness and amnesiacness of God has plagued you, you're going to stand one day with a righteousness that is not your own but comes from God and is received by faith. You are running towards a hand that has reached down to rescue you. A mercy that says you will not be erased no matter how many mistakes. If you believe that, you can keep running. If you think there's a limit to how many times you can screw up or commit the same sin or not improve the way you think, eventually you'll stop asking God. It's kind of like there are people in your life probably where you've said, I'm sorry, for the 1500th time, and then it starts to not make sense to do it anymore. Because you realize, if I say I'm sorry, it's just going to seem like I'm just saying stuff. We both know I don't mean it, I'm just going to do it again. But what if you knew that God would not erase you? And in fact, that one day, when Jesus returns, and this is Paul's vision of this, one day, it's cute now, like little ants, when we say, God's not real, he's not, this Jesus stuff is all a hoax. We're all like little ants. And then one day, this gigantic person is going to appear. The ants are saying, there's no people. There are no really people. And they're, and they're running around, and no one's interfering with anything. And then one day, this gigantic person is going to appear, and the ants are going to look up. And that's what we're going to We're going to see Jesus. And no matter what your speculation is now about it, it's going to be undeniable. His splendiferousness, which is the technical theological word, is going to be apparent to all. Everybody's going to bow the knee to him. Some by force, some by will and desire. We're hoping that we're the ones who do it by will and desire. That we long for his appearing because when he appears and we little ants, he's not going to put his foot down in the ant hill and squash us out. He's going to reach down and somehow, surprisingly, Let us be, as C.S. Lewis said, an ingredient in the divine happiness. Like a grandfather's delight in a boy pitching who's not all that great at it. And if you believe that's what you're looking forward to, and that that's what you were made for, you can keep pushing toward it. If you think he's constantly disapproving, and he's constantly mad, he's constantly sharing your own self-assessment of things, then you'll stop straining for him. You'll say, I can't do it. You won't say, not that I've already attained this, or I've already been made perfect, but one thing I do, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I forget what's behind and I strain toward what is ahead. Like runners in a race. Press to take hold of the God who has taken hold of you. Don't push him away like the kid with his mom after the spelling bee. And you strain toward a strenuous mercy who will not erase you no matter how many mistakes because he has already been erased for you. He has summoned you and you're responding to his gracious welcome. I close with this. There's a story I heard. Some of you hipsters who listen to podcasts. All the young people today are listening to podcasts. 
with people whose voices sound like this. I like a podcast too. But I was listening to this one that Pastor Corby told me about called The Batman. And The Batman is this man named Daniel Kish. Kish, 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 we'll say, because the other sounds like a dish. With spinach and cheese in it that men shouldn't probably eat. Daniel Kish. And Daniel Kish is a man who is blind. He's been blind since he was eight months old. He had some kind of cancer of the eye. And yet, he is someone who does all sorts of things, including ride a bike. He can ride a bike. He can climb a tree. He can go hiking in the woods. He drives a car. He fly- no, he doesn't drive a car. Just kidding. But he can ride a bike, and he can climb a tree, and he can go hiking out in the woods by himself. And you know how he does it? From the earliest age, he taught himself to click. Like a bat. He echolocates. He's created his own kind of internal sonar system where he catches the volume of the mass of things around him. I don't even understand scientifically how it happens. Somebody much smarter than me would have to explain it. All it sounds like to me is he's walking around riding his bike going and then not running into things. And he can, he's, it's amazing. But what he learned is that as he was growing up, When he first met another blind kid, he realized that all the blind people he knew, he felt like had been severely disadvantaged because no one expected anything of them. They were just trying to constantly protect them because they loved them. They didn't want them to get hurt. He even has this great saying. He said, running into a pole is a drag. And he ran into a lot, knocked out his teeth a lot as a kid. But never being allowed to run into a pole is a tragedy. And so he eventually realized the way we're treating blind people is not helping them. We're, not ex- we're teaching them you can't do anything because you can't see. So he decided what he'd do is he started a nonprofit, of course. And he would teach people how to, how to live free as blind people. And his first, one of his first clients was a 10-year-old boy who lived out in Washington State on an apple orchard where there are huge trees to climb. And his thought was, what I'll get this 10-year-old boy to do is climb a tree. There are fantastic trees here. Well, this 10-year-old boy had never done anything like that, and he was not having it. He didn't want to leave his house. So the enticement was this, I'll take away all your toys. So he took away all his toys. That sounds cruel, doesn't it? His parents were in on the gig. So for several days, apparently, this boy was not allowed to have any of his toys. And here's what Daniel said. I wanted him to get a sense for what his life was going to hold if he just held on to these toys. If he refused to go outside, if he refused to learn how to walk and see, even though he could not see, this is what life was going to hold for him. Nothing. He was going to be stuck. And I wanted him to get a taste of it. So eventually, taking the toys away enticed him to go out into the woods, to the orchard. And he got to the tree. And he finally, after much hemming and hawing, he climbs up to the first branch. He gets to the second branch and he says, I can't do it anymore. And he jumps down and the blind man catches him. I don't know how. They didn't even answer that. I was like, how did he do that? It's amazing. But he caught him. And the boy says, I give up. I give up. I give up. And he says, I'll tell you what. You, the only thing you cannot do is give up. 
You may go up the tree, but you may not come down the tree. And even if you never climb a tree again in the rest of your life, you're going to climb this one. You are not allowed to give up. You're not allowed to give up. And the boy cried, and he fought, and he hated it. And he probably hated Daniel Kish, who was being so mean to him. And after three hours, this boy climbed a 60-foot tree feeling, finding solid places to hold that he could not see. Feeling firm and and sturdy places to hold him for his feet that he could not see, but were actually there. And when I heard that story, I thought this is what the Apostle Paul is urging us to. This is what a Christian's life is in so many ways. It's moving out every single day in so much about what we believe we can't see. So we press on. And if we stay where we are and say, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want anything bad to happen to anybody. Then we're stuck with our toys and nothing awaits us. But he says, what I want is the prize of being with him for whom I was made. The one who makes me come alive so that I can find in this life there are places to stand and there are resources to sustain me and energize me and there are securities that exist that I can't see with my eyes. But I only meet them if I don't give up. Will you grab hold of the God who has grabbed hold of you? Will you refuse to be paralyzed by God's grace, but to be energized instead by it. To say, I gotta get me more of that because I can't live without it. Will you be bold like a little kid asking if he can pitch because his grandpa's there? Will you be straining toward a strenuous mercy of someone who will not erase you though you failed in many ways? Will you strain to see Him who is invisible. And find out that he's more real than you ever imagined. If so, we'll have something to offer this world. We'll be able to offer him heaven as we grab a hold of God.